0: Who that cares much to know the history of man, and how the mysterious mixture behaves under the varying experiments of time, has not dwelt, at least briefly, on the life of St. Teresa. Teresa's passionate, ideal nature demanded an epic life. What were many-volumed romances of chivalry and the social conquests of a brilliant girl to her? Her flame quickly burned up that light fuel, and, fed from within, soared after some illimitable satisfaction some object which would never justify weariness, which would reconcile self-despair with the rapturous consciousness of life beyond self. She found her epos in the reform of a religious order. Many Teresas had been born who found for themselves no epic life wherein there was a constant unfolding of far-resonant action, perhaps only a life of mistakes the offspring of a certain spiritual grandeur ill-matched with the meanness of opportunity, perhaps a tragic failure which found no sacred poet and sank unwept into oblivion. Here and there a signet is reared uneasily among the ducklings in the brown pond, and never finds the living stream in fellowship with its own oary-footed kind. Here and there is born a St. Teresa, foundress of nothing, Whose loving heartbeats and sobs after an unattained goodness tremble off and are dispersed among hindrances instead of centering in some long recognizable deed.
1: This is the explosive story of the Karamazov family. The seed of depravity and sin that was in their father was the only thing the brothers had in common.
0: Animated T Rex voiced by John Goodman in a little loved 90s children's film. We're back! <laughs> and welcome back to season two of The Reader's Karamazov. We are, as always, your hosts, the Bastard Sons of Hegel.
2: I am Karl Bookmarks.
0: I'm
1: Friedrich Pecha.
0: And I'm Soren Reergaard. We are glad to be back, folks. We're glad to have you back. A little housekeeping before we begin. As always, you can follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at The Readers K. We are on Facebook, facebook.com slash The Readers Karamazov. And you can always email in any questions or comments you have at The Readers Karamazov at gmail.com. We are so glad to have you back for season two. We're very excited about this season. Um, And I want to say just a couple of words about how this season is working a little bit differently than season one worked. We are starting like we did last season with a, a sort of long, big, heavy book, and that book is George Eliot's Victorian masterpiece, Middlemarch. But differently this year, we are sort of keying the whole season around that book. the The books that we'll be reading subsequently, you know, we'll each pick th- three books. They're going to be somehow related, and sometimes that relation is a little bit tenuous, and sometimes it's very direct and obvious. We're picking books that are playing off somehow Middlemarch, either forerunners or books that have come after and maybe been influenced or just are kind of speaking back to it in certain ways. So we're going to be doing that. We're we're splitting this then into four parts. We've got part one, The Long March, which is our four episodes on Middlemarch, and then we'll be doing three cycles of kind of themed differently each time. So we hope you'll follow along with us. If you want to be reading the books ahead of time, our full schedule is up on our social media. You can look at that, purchase those books. Um, If you just want to listen in, that's great too, and you can stay on top of when we'll be releasing. So we're going to start today and talk a little bit about some of the background of Middlemarch, a a little bit on George Eliot, and then we're going to launch into books one and two of this book, um, talk about some of the characters, talk about some of the themes that are already coming up. Like Eliot does in her book, we're going to... Be sort of setting up a lot of things that are going to then pay off in, in subsequent episodes as well. I'm going to go ahead and do our usual one to two minute plot summary of what's happening here. Then I'm going to throw it over to Friedrich, who's our resident Victorian expert, and ask him to just tell us a little bit about the world of uh, Middlemarch and George Eliot and what he likes about this book and about Eliot more broadly. And then we'll kind of come back and start working our way through some of these bigger issues. So Middlemarch as a whole is this Epic tale of a particular small society, and it's the society of rural England in the late 1820s, heading into the 1830s. A world of aristocrats, of sort of middle class tradespeople, and then on the periphery, um, the the lower classes as well. But a time when there are some major technological changes happening, railroads coming in, there are changes in ideas that are happening, changes in social mores. And the book is navigating this through sort of a, an A plot and a B plot and then a lot of other stuff around the edges. The A plot, the main story, is the story of Dorothea Brooke, who's a young woman who is a very serious-minded woman, and she wants to have a purpose in her life. And she decides that she's going to fulfill that purpose by marrying a minister of the Church of England from, from a neighboring area whose name is uh, Dr. Casaubon and he is writing this gigantic work of scholarship the key to all mythologies and in it he's trying to synthesize sort of all of world history and give some insight into what holds all these threads together she thinks that in marrying him she's going to be able to assist him in this grand synthetic work and then therefore sort of find some purpose for her life so in books one and two in that plot we have an introduction to Dorothea, her sister, her uncle, and the kind of the world that she's living in. Um, And then we get her wooing by Casabon, such as it is. And then we sort of cut a little bit later to after the wedding to their honeymoon in Rome. And you're already starting to see by that point, by the end of book two, that maybe this marriage isn't quite everything that Dorothea was hoping for when she decided she was going to fall in love with and marry Casabon. So that's the, the the first plot. And the second plot focuses on a young, um, ambitious local doctor named uh, Tertius Lydgate. And he's new to Middlemarch, to, to this town. He comes in and is immediately sucked into the world of local politics. He has to deal with some sort of jockeying by local politicians and bankers o- over basically political favors and that sort of thing. But he's also starting at this point to have his eye uh, on a young lady, uh, Rosamund Vinci, the daughter of one of the local businessmen. Nothing's progressed too far at that point, but he's, he's quite taken with her charm, um, her beauty, and everything. But he's also he thinks at this point he's not ready to marry yet because he's very ambitious. He needs to set up his practice first, get going. He also wants to be a sort of social reformer and scientific um, innovator. So those are the two main plots as we have them so far. Um there's a lot of you know, it's two hundred pages of the book already, but there's been a lot of sort of weaving of texture and setting up of plot points that are gonna pay off down the line. So with that I'm gonna throw it over to Friedrich, and Friedrich you can maybe tell us a little bit about this world that Elliot's crafting and anything you think is relevant about her, um, and what and what you like about this book and what it's doing in the
1: Victorian mode. It's good to be back too, by the way, Swansea. I think I'll uh, I'll quick start with just maybe a, con- a contextual overview of what's going on in Middlemarch and the writing of it, uh, but really short, because we'll, we'll talk about a lot of stuff as it comes up and talk maybe a little bit more at length just for a few minutes about George Eliot as a person. Uh, she's really interesting. I think just one important thing we need to remember about the setting of Middlemarch, it's written in you know 1871 and 1872, but it's looking back 40 years to about 1829. And so it's looking back to a time before the first Reform Act when the franchise was expanded, and it was written after the Second Reform Act when the franchise was further expanded. It's looking back at a time before the, the railroad explosion, before, um, or when the Industrial Revolution was still churning and changing, and when what we think of as Victorian England hadn't yet arrived. It's not a wistful look back, but it sort of takes that position every once in a while. But then it's toying with it. It's, an, it's a book about history in a lot of ways, and I think that's in part because it's written by someone who's interested in history and during a time of great historical or historiographical excitement. I think something really important to remember about George Eliot's milieu is that it's a time of polymaths and polyglots and not a time of specialization. A person could be a biblical scholar and a student of East Asian languages and dead languages, and they could also be a scientist. And all of these things weren't really separated and teased out and specialized in the academy the way they are today. And George Eliot has an interesting role in that. She's born Marion Evans, and her pen name is George Eliot. Before she began writing novels, she was a really um, poison-tongued reviewer in uh, periodicals and a translator of very controversial religious critical texts from German, as well as translator of Spinoza from the Latin. She learned like seven languages in her lifetime. She lived... In what we would today call a common law marriage with George Henry Lewis but they were not married it was sort of scandalous and when she wrote Adam Bede her first novel proper she was like outed as as Marion Evans but she kept the pen name George Eliot and then throughout her life she became this sort of great novelist and when Dickens died right before the publication of Middlemarch she was exalted as like the great English novelist alive today I think that um, reputation was really secured by this novel. And we can maybe talk about why that might be. And we can talk about its kind of tenuous hold on a faith or a religious belief or religious ethic that maybe isn't quite, that she's kind of relenting because she, she had already relented at that point in her life. And we should keep in mind that like uh, Tolstoy after her, she's someone who inspired like almost a cultish following. People would come to her home. And like try and touch a hem of her the hem of her garment and beg her for words of wisdom and she would say, like, I'm I'm sick of like doling out wisdom to these people. It was She had a, a huge fandom by the time Middlemarch was being published.
2: The relevance of Middlemarch in the in the history of the novel is pretty interesting. And we can sort of think of it in the in the present as the famed, arguably best Donned the best, um, and we should be very skeptical about if he is the best, living novelist and writing in English, Jonathan Franzen, this October, his first book of a proposed new trilogy, I think it's called Crossroads, but the trilogy itself is called A Key to All Mythologies, so clearly sees himself in the Eliotic tradition.
1: Maybe he sees himself as Kassaban, and he knows he's a fool. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, either way, um, I think
2: Elliot, as far as I understand her, is a really interesting sort of writer in the realist tradition. And I think a lot of the books we're going to be tackling this season are sort of championing that the realist novel, capital R. Or at
0: least, or at least wrestling with the realist novel right. in some form or other. Yes, many of them are realist and some of them are not, but they're talking back to it or something like that. Absolutely. Yeah. That will be a theme of the season, for sure.
1: I'd be interested to ask throughout this episode and the next three how this novel sees its own realism, too. Um, How is it playing with the idea of being realistic? And reading a a program era, pared-down short story from the 1950s forward in America, we might think that's very realistic because there's no extraneous description or reveries from the narrator, whereas this book is full of narratorial insertions. And um, we can talk about maybe what that narrator's doing as well.
0: Do you want to start there then as a question of structure of these two books, you know, 200 pages out of 800. It struck me reading through this time, a couple of things about the structure I found very fascinating and maybe a little bit different than we might expect. One is that she is doing so much basically pre-work here. She's doing a whole lot of setting up these ideas and setting up these characters and kind of digging into who they are. Um, But we don't get tons and tons of plot in this section. It's going to take a little while for the actual complications to set in. It's 200 pages of here's this person, here's this other person, here's their relationship, here's what they're like, and not a lot of payoff at this point. So that's a very patient style, a very patient structure. The other things that I was noticing she makes at one point a really interesting reference to a magic lantern show. The images coming by like a magic lantern show. And and I want to talk about that just briefly. One of the most important directors uh, and infamous directors of early film, D.W. Griffith, um, was said to carry with him on every film set a, a novel of Dickens. Mm. And he his explanation was like... All the stuff that I want to do, Dickens was already doing in his novels. He's doing this cinematic language. And I was no, and maybe it was just that Magic Lantern reference, so Magic Lantern is sort of a precursor to cinema. Th- there's a sense of the cinematic here, it feels like. And I noticed that in particular in what we might call, and, and Dickens does this very effectively as well, but we might call it something like cross-cutting, where the, the ways in which the Elliot is moving back and forth between these different stories is really fascinating. And the main one that sticks out in these two sections is... Um, she starts book one, about three quarters of book one is really focused on Dorothea, her impending marriage to Casaubon, And then we cut to Lydgate's story and his story ends book one. And then book two picks up with Lydgate's story where it left off. And then we go back to Dorothea and end out book two. And so it's a really very pleasing structure because we don't have like you know, you read like in, I was just reading Lord of the Rings to my kids recently. And in Lord of the Rings, it's like, okay, book one of Two Towers is all about everybody else. And then book two is all about Frodo and Sam, right? there's no cross cutting there. It's a less cinematic vision than this, which is like, we're kind of blending these stories back and forth in a more fluid way. And that's going to accelerate a little bit more as we get further in the book as well. What did you all make of the structure of these first two books? And, what Elliot's doing kind of behind the scenes.
2: She does a good job in pairing oppositions with these cross cuts. And I take her style to be sort of philosophically infused realism, since, you know, that is our wheelhouse for all three of us. And what does Dorothea, what does she like or love about Casaban is really drawn to the forefront. And then, What other people dislike about him is that's sort of contrasted in the beginning, and then when we move to like Lydgate, we see like a way of pairing but also opposing Casaubon to Lydgate, and then also Dorothea to to Lydgate as well. And in every section where like where two of those three are together, we see like a nice opposition that Eliot has paired for us, and so she's she's pushing like different aspects of like intellectual passion. In different ways through these pairings of each character and uh it seems to me always to sort of be for the purpose of making a kind of point on a certain philosophical level and like a realism level so i like that about the
1: cross-cutting it's interesting to me that you're using the word cinematic because dickens is and, and eisenstein writes about this too right dickens is so cinematic and like the cricket on the hearth begins with like a zoom in or something like that or a zoom out i can't remember you can you read dickens and you can see everything that's happening he establishes a scene he draws you into it, and he propels you through it and i feel like i don't know if i would use the word cinematic but i think i understand what you mean for elliot that it's it's cinematic in like a more she's actually ah.
0: she's actually more maybe more eisensteinian than dickens sure. is because more montage you mean montage yes her use of it is a little bit more intellectual maybe than Dickens, who's a little bit more intuitive or sensual or something like that.
1: Yeah, that's great. That's what I was wondering if you were talking about, because it, it is more about like the logic of where you cut and when you cut and why you cut, which is so cinematic. And the book is about m- being in the middle of things, right? Where's the beginning and the ending? And that's the whole problem in, in editing film as well. Whereas you're right, Dickens is so much more uh, about kind of what you're seeing and how people are talking and why they're... Uh, moving in certain ways and what that says about their character whereas this is so internal as far as character obviously what they're saying but so much of what the characters are thinking about one another that that's not very cinematic but i see what you mean now that it is it's evocative of montage and evocative of the the more intellectual problems of film how do you cut where do you cut why what does that mean about what you're doing something i like about this novel is is exactly what you said about the way it's sort of the books bleed into one another and there's not clear cliffhangers and endings and beginnings that we hang on to and jump from and, and recognize. But there are, like Carl was saying, oppositions and dyads and and those are always, I think Ellie gets praised a lot for this, they're always more complicated than they initially seem. And so much of the narratorial energy is spent on like clarifying, well, this person seems this way to us right now because that's what Dorothea sees in him that's what Lydgate sees but as a more maybe sympathetic or or patient reader here's what we can think about them and there are so many moments of like pausing over a person and really thinking like well why did they do that and what's their motivation or is it something that they like did they say this or do this because it was just sort of a tossed-off behavior that they weren't thinking about and the narrator wants to know that why are they doing this
0: yeah and to, to return to Carl's point which I thought was a really good one you know we could say as, as the bastard sons of Hegel here, right? It's like a dialectic method in some ways. And one of the dialectics that's going on is this inner-outer. There's a contrast between the way that people present themselves and or are seen by others and what the reality is underneath. And she's really playing those off against each other in some effective ways. Right from the beginning, she's doing this with, with Dorothea. I, I, this is just a part right from the very first chapter that I'm going to read really quickly and so we can kind of see some of the ways in which she's working this. This is her, she's talking initially about the way that the other women in the countryside view Dorothea and her sister, um, Celia. So this is what she, Elliot says. The rural opinion about the new young ladies, even among the cottagers, was generally in favor of Celia as being so amiable and innocent looking, while Miss Brooke's large eyes seemed like her religion, too unusual and striking. Poor Dorothea. Compared with her, the innocent looking Celia was knowing and worldly wise. So much subtler is a human mind than the outside tissues, which make a sort of blazonry or clock face for it. Yet those who approached Dorothea, though prejudiced against her by this alarming hearsay, found that she had a charm unaccountably reconcilable with it. And that's, I think, a really brilliant example of this. She's doing it in kind of several different ways. She's showing us Celia, who so often, especially in Dorothea's eyes, comes across as just sort of like a, I don't know, like a simpering idiot or something. She's really nice, but she's not very intelligent. Dorothea sort of condescends to her a lot. And actually, it's Celia who's the one who figures out, like there's this other suitor who's really interested in Dorothea, Sir James. And Dorothea's just like, oh, he must be interested in Celia. That's why he's always hanging around here. And Celia's like, no, you idiot, he's interested in you, right? And so she's the one who, even though she seems sort of naive or innocent on the outside, she actually has a lot more cunning and subtlety inside than Dorothea does, who's quite naive when it comes to other people. But at the same time, she's also showing you this difference between how people are viewing Dorothea, which is as this very serious-minded, too zealous in her religion. She's sort of puritanical, maybe. The, the book uses that word. But but she's Elliot's also showing us, like, she's also a charming person. She's not just this terrible, upright battle axe or something like that, right? There's, there's the impressions that are made, but then there are realities underneath as well that when you approach without prejudice, you can kind of examine and see those depths.
2: And the word that comes to mind always, uh, I think that's used the most with Dorothea's ardent She is an ardent person. And I think that's too is sort of, you know, for the people who claim that this is the greatest English language novel of all time, I think those people are usually those that are enamored of realism. And I think that what this book does really strongly as realist novel is like for the philosopher Hannah Arendt, like the vita activa, the the life of activity that is, you know, half of what we are as human beings, the other half being the, Vida contemplativa, the contemplative life, we side more with active life in in realism. And the sort of main element of personhood in the active life is the will. And so Dorothea is the ardent will for us. And she's a sort of metaphor for what that ardent person can do and can strongly fail to do in a lot of ways. And so I like reading her as a type of that in certain ways. You know, as Soren said, she's also a type of many other things, but I really like the way that Elliot sort of elevates typologies of the will throughout Middlemarch. And what is the correct or best project for a will to undertake, I think is perhaps one of the biggest questions of a realist novel. And I think it's like really at the heart of Middlemarch. What is the correct project for someone to do with their talents and their will. Building cottages or houses for the poor or corralling a political situation to make it an important vote. These are the kind of things that like we'd get and others are doing. And in the beginning we get Dorothy as a sort of sense of like if only one has the correct knowledge for a sp- certain situation. They can create the best possible outcome for everyone and so she's really enamored of kasaban who she sees as the person who of everyone around her has figured out the most knowledge he has the most so he's the best and his duties and his will will be the most perfect and i think she kind of does a really good job of critiquing and chipping away at that at that view
0: That's fascinating, especially because there seems to be this almost like he's the immovable object and she's the irresistible force or something. Because he is sort of, in some senses, like pure knowledge, although we could maybe question what that knowledge is worth. But he's a sort of collector of these items. He's always gathering all this data and he never does anything with it. Right. She's like. When are you going to get around to, like, writing something, right? And he's just constantly gathering. He's constantly checking his notes. He's constantly figuring out. He's critiquing other people's approaches, but he never settles down and does anything with that. So I think that's a brilliant point, Carl, that there's this maybe a loosening of will away from knowledge as sort of no longer dependent on knowledge necessarily, but something active outside. And you see that sort of her dream of building these cottages is, not encouraged by Casabon, right? It was encouraged by Sir James, her other suitor, but who doesn't have a thought in his head. He's like, all will and no knowledge, right? So she's sort of struggling to find some medium place there. A middle place, I suppose.
1: <laughs> There's definitely a narratorial dwelling on the divide between contemplation and activity and will and where they intersect and where they don't. Activities, like you were both just saying, that are sort of done like a machine, almost, and that seem to be driving towards something, but which are ultimately just, uh, like, whirly gigs doing nothing. And then someone like Mr. Brook, who I love, who is, like, his pen is, like, writing his thoughts for him, they say, right? Like, like, he doesn't actually have a thought, he doesn't take a position, but in that moment, oh, it's right to argue that this person should be promoted in the church. And in another moment, it's right to argue against the promotion of people in the church in general, and giving them raises. It doesn't matter, like... What will is driving this? It just <laughs> happens because he's in that social situation. I think that Elliot's really artistically and successfully depicting people's competing wills as both like active attempts to like better the world, like Carl was saying, that are deliberate, like building the cottages or whatever, and then that are sometimes like totally unknown to like the people even performing them. Like, why are they motivated this way? And I think a great example of that is Mrs. Codwallader, who's a a gossip and uh old wealth fallen on hard times woman, right? Who Dorothea or certainly Cosabon, Mr. Brooke, can't really understand her motivations for doing certain things. Why is she interested in uh setting Sir James up with Celia after Dorothea says she won't marry him? No one could really understand. And the narrator says, well it's because she's like some sort of microorganic creature that <laughs> is creating these swirls of language and Maybe that's not our food, but to her, that's a sort of sustenance. And it's all these different people getting sustenance in different different ways and from different things. And how do people in a social circle interact, try to mutually benefit or not, or overtake others when they, they don't even care about the same things?
0: Can we... I, w- I want to talk about this and maybe a, a push it in a slightly different direction, but a related one, which is this... Maybe a distinction between... Usefulness and pleasantness, or or u- utility and leisure, or something like that. And I want to do that by talking about uh, Lydgate's friend, Reverend Fairbrother. Fairbrother is this basically a go nowhere reverend in town. He's in his late thirties. He he supports his mother and his sisters, but he's unmarried. And he's like basically he admits a pretty lackluster person. Like his his um, homilies are well regarded. <laughs> But as like an actual minister, you know, he's pretty whatever. He's like, I'm going to give my homily, and then what he really wants to do is go collect bugs. He's like an amateur entomologist, um, and that's like what he does all day. <laughs> he just goes out in the countryside and gets these bug collections, and he's super into them. Lydgate moves to town, and he sort of immediately gloms onto Fairbrother as the o- one of the only people in town who's about his age, reasonably intelligent, and kind of fun to hang out with. But but Lydgate is so different from Fairbrother in so many ways because Lydgate is ambitious. And the reason he moves to the countryside is he thinks, aha, like here, there aren't the pressures of the city. My job itself is going to be pretty easy. So I can devote myself to my actual hobby, which is, you know, doing medical research, and I'm going to make a huge breakthrough. And on the surface, that's pretty similar to Fairbrother, who kind of putzes around at his job and then goes and does his bug collection. But the difference is that Fairbrother's not ambitious at all. And he understands that like what he's doing is very niche. No one really understands it or wants to, to participate in it. He does it for his own pleasure. There's no sort of utility in it. And Lydgate's great ambition is that he could become someone important, someone who's do- making, it, making a difference in the world, but also having his name be known. And there's this interesting contrast. You know, one of the early swells in Lydgate's story is this dispute over Who's going to get this appointment to uh, basically be the pastor for a hospital? Is it going to be Fairbrother or is it going to be this other guy who is supported by a banker and he's much more zealous and rigorous and you know much more religious, frankly, um, than Fairbrother is? And Lydgate is sort of the deciding vote. Lydgate votes against his friend, Fairbrother. And Fairbrother's like, yeah, you know, you got to do what you got to do. And he's like, it doesn't affect his ability to be friends at all with him. And, and you get the sense that if the situation were reversed, Lydgate would be like, well, screw you. I'm not going to be a friend anymore, right? There's a difference in that Lydgate is so driven by this desire to be useful, to to have utility, and Fairbrother is motivated by a much more leisurely, you know, a sort of love of things as they are. I think that's an interesting contrast as well.
2: I would almost include like the Odyssey and the Iliad in in the realist tradition in this sense and in the way that for Lydgate to have entered the chronicle of history is the highest achievement one can have. And to have won the day in a vote and change things as they affect the terra firma of the chronicle of human events, that's what is of most import, right? And pleasures, things that are kind of born and live their time and end like within one's mind or within one's person, chiefly like typed. By Casaubon, that sort of supreme pleasure or supreme pursuit of pleasure is downplayed. That's not as uh, valuable or important in like the realist tradition, certainly. So there's a bit of that, I think, going on. With Lydgate Lid- represents an interesting aspect of that. Though I like how he's undercut, and I, I definitely want to talk about at some point the like philosophical puzzle of the murder on stage, because. <laughs> It kind of shows his limitations with respect to contemplation or philosophy.
1: I think something interesting about Lydgate, too, is that he's interested in finding the tissues and webs that make the organs of the body and to find out, are they, are they related? And if so, how and what, what constitutes them? And if we can find that out, we can find the basis of all of these organs and find out how they're actually way more interconnected then we think, we can be better physicians. Similarly, Kazuban, not that he's ever going to produce his book, but if he can find the key, it's all about finding the key, right? Carl was saying they want to be on on the great historic stage, making their mark, uh, and to do that, they're both aiming at this sort of web, and we have to connect.
2: Everything. I mean, all he had to do was push, like, finish his book, and then his life would have been, you know, a lot more meaningful. But
1: but no, because then Ladislaw points out he doesn't even read German, and he's so behind the Germans, that it's embarrassing even. And Lidget sort of has, he doesn't have that huge blind spot that Casabon has, but he's trained in Paris, right, where they're doing mm-hmm. autopsies and experiments. And he's not an Oxford man, and, and the English doctors sort of look down on him as like, he's too French. He's doing disgusting stuff. And then he criticizes the English doctors and the English medical system as being too um, like dependent on opinions and other people's even untrained people's opinions right and he's like i'm gonna change that system he wants to change everything i think there was something interesting elliot's doing as a realist since carl really wants to talk about realism today is uh (laughs) using these sort of metonyms the pursuit of like the web and the pursuit of a key and then applying a similar but more self-conscious approach to her own novel moving from consciousness to consciousness and from a position that's aware of its own like observation. It's not like I'm uh, omniscient and I'm going to tell you everything. It's a lot more self-conscious, the narration, the narrator's voice, but it's an attempt to depict a web of social relations and different motivations in order to give us something, but it's not coming at it from like an end point. I think where she's saying, and here's what I'm going to give you, and it's the perfect realist novel or something like that. It's a more ethereal project, if that. I know that's a very airy thing to say, but if that makes sense. Always putting on airs. I want to pick up one
0: of those threads, um, especially from Carl talking about entering the chronicle of life, because in w- one way that I think that Eliot is very consciously playing with that tradition from the very beginning is her awareness that these are people whose lives don't really matter. And you know, there's a very the very famous line at the end which we'll get to, to about to history. Yeah. There's there's a very famous line at the end that we'll get to about hidden lives. We'll talk about that more probably when we get there, but but from the very beginning, she gives us this really weird prelude. It kind of comes out of nowhere, and you'll have heard a little bit of it uh, listeners at the beginning of this episode. I'm reading an excerpt from the prelude, but she's discussing basically Dorothea as a sort of type of St. Teresa of Avila, who's a, a myst, Christian mystic, um, comes along and basically reforms a religious order from the inside out and kind of accomplishes this great mission, along with, and interestingly, right, she kind of marries action and contemplation. She is a, a contemplative. She writes some of the great works of Christian mysticism you know, the interior castle, right, but but is also a, a person of action and it brings about something in the world, this change in the world. and And... Elliot's sort of wondering over, like, what, what happens when you have a personality like this and not the material to work on to make this great work, to accomplish this great deed in the world? Like, what do you end up with? And so the book, I think, is in a lot of ways, is a book about frustrated ambition or frustrated desire. Uh, and you see that in multiple characters, certainly in Lydgate in and but but then primarily in Dorothea. A- and, of course, there's the element here of her being a woman and being more limited in her scope in what she could think about accomplishing um, in her society. But I think also more broadly, it's about the vast majority of people in the world are not going to make a difference in the world in a sort of world historical sense, right? They're not going to get their name in the the newspaper or do something that's going to, to be written down in textbooks, right? Or something like that. What do those people do if they have ambition desire how do they work those things out how do they maybe make peace with that the limits on their ambition
2: that that's why to me this is again capital R realist novel where like the person to be is the reformer who corrects the path of a wayward institution such that from this prologue the function of knowledge for the ardently willing soul has been trued to the right course again Because this this prelude talks about those for whom there is no coherent social faith, no epic life to become a a Teresa, you know, to enter the the chronicle of history as a good and noble servant of some sort of institution, which effects a greater good for a given people. What happens when they can't meet up with that institution or that institution isn't doing well? and their their place in it isn't good and their outcomes are missing that's a bit of the way that i read the intro maybe it's a little slightly different than the way you're reading it i i didn't get the sense that saint Teresa was a contemplative master from this prelude seemed to me that like the contemplative works are kasabanistic
0: well um, i don't (laughs) i i guess i just take it as an assumed right that that Elliot clearly knows St. Teresa. She knows what that background is. So that's, I, you're right. I think that in the prelude itself, it is much more focused on the action, the reform. You're right. But, but I also think that, I mean, Elliot seems very concerned to at least not undercut necessarily, but put it, put something of a damper on that reformist, like the too zealous reformist, um, yeah. take, which is something, you know, the last episode of, of last season, we talked about the warden, Um, Anthony Trollope has something of that same sort of wry view of reform. It's probably well-motivated, but it can also go
1: off the rails pretty easily. Carl, I find it interesting in all of our readings. I feel like you always want to ask, what's the best way to do something? What's the (laughs) best way to live? It's very philosophical of you in the old school sense, very ancient Greek. You're like, "How how am I supposed to live, George Eliot? Tell me, what is the course I'm supposed to true to? I appreciate that. I think... It's a little ironic, all of this, that asking about one's place in history, it's sort of like that's, you know, 7.7 billion people are asking that question. And one, I don't know, out of every how many of them are are actually responding to a moment in history that they'll be remembered for. And so it's not even like, oh, it's this is depicting a specific group of people in, in the Midlands in England who are just not historical at all. They're just boring. They're never going to do anything. In fact it's depicting all of us because that's all of us right (laughs) like how many of us will be uh, remembered and so in that way it is realist and it's interesting i also though think it's an important there's an important correspondence to another writer from last season iris murdoch in against dryness who writes about being benighted right that all of these people in her novels that aren't individuals with easily identified wills acting toward goals that we can all identify in fact most people, in her view, are confused about the state of the world, about the metaphysical state of the world, and like what it even is. What are we really doing when we gut away all of like our like immediate goals and our, our plans for ourselves? And Elliot's not that modern, I guess. She's not saying that. But she is depicting people who, like all of us, think they might know certain things, but don't. And they think they might be doing something for a good reason and aren't. Or they've done something in their past that they're trying to escape, whatever. But everyone is sort of given a base level of sympathy, just as everyone's sort of looked at with a base level of skepticism.
0: That's a really great point, Friedrich. That balance between sympathy and skepticism really is an engine that drives this book. And and if you... I think that's part of what makes it so wonderful as a as a juggling act is like if you go off to one side, you just get this way too cynical, sarcastic book. You hate everybody, right? And you go over to the other side and, you know, it's just maudlin or something, right? And, and, yeah. and to me, you know, I see that and we're going to get more of this in, in the next section, certainly, but with Casabon, with especially, it would be so easy to paint him as just an utter idiot and yeah and instead we get you know we get some of that he he clearly is a man who's in some ways has wasted his life um on this this knowledge that's never going to come to fruition there's a sort of barrenness about him and he's old and kind of ugly. He looks like John Locke. She said, people say, people say, rebel- <laughs> which is, which is, sexy. okay, well, <laughs> you can do that. that that's what Dorothy yeah, is into. So. Um, <laughs> you gotta lock that down. Um, but she defends, she defends on
1: that point like,
2: to Celia. She's, she says, well, she does I think that, he looks yeah. like John Locke. So, and that's
1: a good one. Well, yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah. Like she's got a picture like Tiger Beat magazine, John Locke. On her, <laughs>
0: to eat, to eat on her, her own, head, I suppose. On her window. But, but even, you know, by the end of, of book two, we're starting to see the sort of cracks in their marriage are, are just barely beginning to emerge. A- and you see, you know, th- they come up in these conversations where there's some tension and he just he can't talk about the tension. Right. If, if there's a sort of suggestion that if he were able to just like talk to Dorothea about the situation, Maybe they could have a little emotional moment and, and they could fix things and kind of go along. But he just can't make that overture. But the way that Elliot depicts him in that moment is not like some terrible man, um, some cruel, you know, unfeeling person. It's like a person so trapped inside of himself for so long. I mean, he's been companionless for many years. He's much older than Dorothea. So set in his ways, so trapped in his own head that he's just unable to break out and there's a great deal of sympathy in that depiction even though he's also you know an object of ridicule for for people in the book and even for us as well right so there's that wonderful balance between skepticism and sympathy as you set it up Friedrich, that's a really helpful division for for the way that Elliot approaches characters
1: yeah he's almost uh 50 and uh 50 is not the new 40 in 1829 it's probably the <laughs> new 60 and uh it's the new 90 <laughs> yeah he's like described as like an old man he's not that old but he's they're just like this creaky crank like cranky decrepit cobweb covered man in the okay library. okay he's awesome okay let's just admit <laughs>
2: that he's kind of awesome
1: well something i like that elliot says near that moment is casabon is like a genuine article of what he says he is you see him he tells you what he is and that's what he is and the problem in their marriage or in the courtship one is that you don't get to see who a person really is before, you, you know, during the courtship. She talks about how that's really just a dalliance. It's nothing until a, a marriage is something much longer. But she says Dorothy is the one who is looking in him and saying that little uh, like way of talking about his uh, studies with me is going to open up a great world of knowledge. It's going to open up like a cavern inside his mind that I can explore with him. And in fact, no, the way he interacted with her before marriage is the way he's always going to interact with her. And they're like, that's not his fault. He, that's just <laughs> who he is. And he never said he wasn't that.
2: As Soren is saying, in the realist tradition, the, the philosopher on top of the mountain is Aristotle, right? And so the, the golden mean is what we want. And so as a novelist, George Eliot, I think, is always doing something interesting with respect to what is the too much and what is the too little on this spectrum with this character. Casabon's virtue is his ability to understand myth, but therefore in reality, he's he's lackluster. And something about his intellect and his contemplation is like top-notch. And therefore, you know, something about his action is really uh, maybe the worst of any of the characters we meet. And she does a good job of, you know, always pushing us, seesawing us away from the fulcrum of that golden mean. And I think that's a, a great aspect of the book. And it's why I really like Mr. Brooke because Mr. Brooke is just on the fulcrum all of the time and never gets off. And so he seems like he has no opinion, no like sense of self. He's just like a go along to get along kind of a dude. And so I often often love his asides and his, his sense of what's going on and what's to be done uh, because he's kind of the weird like eye of the storm in all of these different uh, mist, golden means.
0: That's great, Carl. This might be a good place to to push in a direction um, that I wanted to consider a little bit, which is, since we're talking about Eliot's use of a, almost an architectural design to this book and the ba- the sense of balance that you get here, I wanted to think a little bit about the section near the end of book two. So Casabon and Dorothea have gone on their honeymoon to Rome. And while they're there, so he... He's trying to combine business and pleasure right He's going on to, going to Rome because there's some archives at the Vatican that he wants to look at while they're there. <laughs> So they're there. she's supposed to basically be entertaining herself while he's doing this archival work. She wants to come help him in the archives. He says no 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 no, no. you go see Rome. it's great. And um, so meanwhile while they're there they meet uh, they by chance meet um, will Ladislaw who is Casaubon's um, second cousin. He's the product of a, a kind of scandalous marriage that uh, his mother had made and not he's supported by Casabon, but not liked by Casabon. We'll, we'll kind of learn more about Ladislaw as we go along in the book because he, he's going to become a more important character. But basically here, his role is that he is in Rome working under a German painter, sort of as an apprentice, and he's there to sort of think about painting and art and beauty and poetry and all these things and and he gets involved in some conversations with dorothea and, and a little bit with kossaban um about what art is in at the very beginning of this as he's introduced again in rome we've met him briefly in england but as we meet him again in rome he's talking to his friend the german painter and they're having a discussion about art and literature and he says something very interesting Ladislaw does about why literature is superior to visual art and this is what he says i think this is very interesting And and again, I don't want to necessarily suggest that this is some sort of artist statement from Eliot. But it is an interesting thing to consider in, in a book that's very wrapped up in depiction and the power of language to think about this. So this is what he says. He says, language gives a fuller image, which is all the better for being vague. After all, the true seeing is within and painting stares at you with an insistent imperfection. I feel that especially about representations of women. As if a woman were a mere colored superficies, you must wait for movement and tone. There is a difference in their very breathing. They change from moment to moment. This woman whom you've just seen, that's Dorothea, for example, how would you paint her voice, pray? But her voice is much diviner than anything you have seen of her. What do you all make of that, of Elliot's sort of suggestion that speaking through Ladislaw, literature is in a sense superior to the plastic arts or the painted arts because there's that sense of movement of change that's possible.
1: I think that's interesting and it it, it occurs in a crucial moment that like weirdly reflects that statement like novelistically. I'll explain what I mean. So, Ladislaw is with now Man, right? Isn't that his name? Man of Now because he's such a, he's just on the the bleeding edge of artistic experimentation or something and they're looking at dorothea who's like reclining her head upon her hand and watching not the artworks around her but the play of sunlight on the ground or something like that and they're speculating on what she's thinking and then novelistically the reason i said is the next chapter is dorothea in rome disappointed in her husband who wants to spend all his time at the library becoming more and more despondent until she finds herself at the, va- uh, the gallery wherever they are with her head in her hand and it brings us back to that moment so it's like a quick rewind backwards new chapter bring us back to that exact moment to sort of illustrate we're looking at a person we're guessing and speculating about her we can't know what's going on in her mind but maybe language can do that better than an artwork and then elliot sort of does that here's the moment that brought us here and not just a moment of action but moments of contemplation reflection and everything that brought us to Nauman and uh, Ladislaw talking about her.
2: I mean, I don't agree with the statement like as a pure statement sure. or like pure thesis. You know, the one. I mean, they're both like highly mimetic arts, and you can involve compositional movement in a static, you know, visual work of art as well as like a dynamic conceptualism or something hidden under the surface of your language in your writing. I think that just qualifies as a good modern painting, good modern literature. They, they both are trying to do both of those things. But I do think, as um, Friedrich is pointing out, it's more important in the context of the book and what we're trying to get out of the book because th- these are two arts opposed, again, as metonyms in the two people in a way, right? Will is the now He's maybe like an early Impressionist. But Kastenbahn represents like something literary about the arts. And this person who's like, with her when she could be with her husband on her on her honeymoon and maybe he's like more of the painterly and certainly in like Casaban's mind or from the narrative perspective of Casabon they're like going to see the great paintings of rome that's like what she should be doing on her honeymoon instead of hanging out with him because that's what one does on their first trip to rome on one's fifth or whatever trip to Rome, one goes to the archive of one's choice. That's his mindset. So I think the the description there is playing into like something about Cospin's point of view. As you said before, Soren, it's kind of weighing against something that was said before, doing a nice and interesting balancing act. We're not supposed to take it fully, but on that line of skepticism you were talking about before.
0: The other thing that's interesting to me about the depiction of the sort of art world in Rome that Dorothea encounters is the sort of shock to her system that it provides, uh, because um, Eliot very cunningly pairs this with the beginning of her disillusionment with Casabon, not just as a husband, but as a scholar. She starts to realize, like, oh, I thought this guy was producing you know, whatever, the next essay on the understanding of man. But instead, he's just diddling around and not doing anything, and he's never going to produce anything. She starts to have that realization. And so there's that sort of disillusionment that's happening in her marriage while she's also starting to lose, in some ways, lose that very ardent to use that word again from carl that ardent sense of purpose that she's had from her girlhood as a sort of religious and aesthetic sense right hers is a very straightforward religion in some ways right she knows these things she's sort of a you know in that the puritan tradition maybe is, is what eliot sort of says or the evangelical tradition which means something quite different in, in the 19th century than it does now but that sort of passionate straightforward reforming ideas and she kind of runs into this like guess, stone wall in rome which is catholicism and she doesn't know what to do with it there's a very interesting analog in, in a book that all of us have read i like maybe the other two don't like it so much but uh, it's harriet beecher stowe's book the minister's wooing which like middlemarch takes place in a much earlier society
2: Shout out to all the ministers wooing fans. All two there. of us. <laughs> um,
0: take, it takes place, you know, Peter Stowe's writing in the mid-1800s in America. She's writing about a Puritan England of a century before. And in that book, the main character is, is somewhat like Dorothea. She's in a, you know, she's heading towards maybe a bad marriage. And she gets this shock to her system from her, her contact with a French woman who gives her some of her Catholicism. And it's like this weird incommensurable moment. And it's not like anybody like converts to Catholicism in these books, but it's this weird otherness that activates something inside of them and kind of shakes them out of their complacency. Reading just a little bit from this Dorothy's encounter in Rome. This is just what, what Elliot says about the sort of the sensual impressions that she's getting. The weight of unintelligible Rome might lie easily on bright nymphs to whom it formed a background for the brilliant picnic of Anglo-foreign society. But Dorothea had no such defense against deep impressions. Ruins and basilicas, palaces and colossi, set in the midst of a sordid present, where all that was living and warm-blooded seemed sunk in the deep degeneracy of a superstition divorced from reverence. The dimmer but yet eager titanic life gazing and struggling on walls and ceilings, the long vistas of white forms whose marble eyes seemed to hold the monotonous light of an alien world. All this vast wreck of ambitious ideals, sensuous and spiritual, mixed confusedly with the signs of breathing forgetfulness and degradation, at first jarred her as with an electric shock, and then urged themselves on her with that ache belonging to a glut of confused ideas which check the flow of emotion i think that's a really wonderful descriptive passage of the sort of overwhelming impression that she receives there and in some sense that's a really a positive thing that she's at least open to having that sensation because the contrast that we're given is with casa who says oh yeah go see these things these are the things you see when you're in rome these are the pictures that are important to go look at. These are the the churches that are important to visit, right? He has that sort of checklist mentality. Yes, we're in Rome. You have never been here before. Go see St. Peter's Basilica. Of course, on the surface, he's right. Yeah, you're in Rome. Go to see St. Peter's Basilica. But at the other at that other level, he has no openness to that. It's just a sort of checklist for him. And, but for her, it's this overwhelming, and it's overwhelming in part not just because it's beautiful. That would be one thing, but because it's this beauty mixed with degeneracy, which is, is kind of wonderful, right? Sort of like, a you know, you see that the Catholicism is this very other thing here, right? They're not like English peasants who, you know, don't have much religion and are just content to what, you know, kind of live their normal lives. They've got superstition. The reverence is gone, but they've got this superstition. So it's this weird otherness that gives her some sense of, as Ellie describes it, that titanic struggle of life.
1: That's a beautiful passage. It's a amazing depiction of the wreckage of history yeah. <laughs> erupting from the ground and i think i mean i won't dwell on this for more than a second but we're going to read thomas hardy later in this season and i love the different points of view they take on this that Sorn, you're totally right to point out how for dorothea elliott narrates at one point near this that she's someone who's used to like meager protestant histories it's too short and it's too straightforward it's not mystical it's not uh, transcendent in this way, and it's not base or vulgar or sensuous either. It's just normal and boring. I think Hardy is going to be interesting because he's someone who depicts the Roman presence in England, and we see aqueducts, viaducts, Roman roads, these things. Or in like the end of Tess of the Durbervilles, they end up at Stonehenge, and is this strange sort of historical, mystical place for them. And Superstition of like English paganism is always present in his novels and showing England to be a much weirder and uh, historical place than Dorothy is imagining it as well. Eliot's not doing that here, right? Eliot's contrasting that with Rome. But I think what's interesting about Middlemarch and a lot of her novels is that she's invested in like taking that dramatic and beautiful moment of this Catholic city both sensual and mystical and ev- all that stuff and a confused melange of like wills like accumulating over time in artworks and architectures to make this, this mess which still exists today and you can leave the colosseum and go through the forum and then there's a big Roundabout and a highway leading out of town, and it's just like a mess. And she's invested in taking that grand version of the wreckage of history and then looking at it in England in the Midlands now in a way that's a lot less romantic, sure, but it's still invested in like how are the people that I'm looking at in Middlemarch, in Loamshire, both made up places, participating in that same project of like all these different ways of looking at God or the world or answering questions about why we're here, how bodies work, whatever. And how do those things collide? And if you look around you, they're happening now, but they're not as dramatic as they as they seem like in Rome or whatever. It's just building some new cottages alongside the old, instead of like yeah, the boring old turning old cottage the turning beyond into a church
0: or something like that.
2: Um, yeah. There's a passage that reminds me of what you're all saying. It's right around the same time. And I think it, it highlights what you've been saying. To those who have looked at Rome with the quickening power of a knowledge which breathes a growing soul into all historic shapes and traces out the suppressed transitions which unite all contrasts, Rome may still be the spiritual center and interpreter of the world, but let them conceive one more historical contrast, the gigantic broken revelations of that imperial and papal city thrust abruptly on the notions of a girl who had been brought up in English and Swiss Puritanism, fed on meager Protestant histories, and on art chiefly of the hand screen sort, a girl whose ardent nature turned all her small allowance of knowledge into principles, fusing her actions into their mold, and whose quick emotions gave the most abstract things the quality of a pleasure or a pain, a girl who had lately become a wife, and from the enthusiastic acceptance of untried duty, found herself plunged in tumultuous preoccupation with her personal lot. To take it back to the philosophical for a second to um to bring up your two namesakes uh, there's something really anti-existential about kasvan he just wants the list of what's good he doesn't care about a personal experience of what has been said to be good overpowering him and changing him and becoming important for his person and Dorothy is trying to like fit her life into that anti-existentialist model that she sees Casaban as somewhat of a model for, but then she's quickly realizing that she kind of comes from like a British empiricist world, like philosophical world like that, or like this brash brunt utility to pleasure is something that might be worth pursuing. But then very quickly, that's not very fulfilling. Um, and she's bored on her honeymoon. And so this isn't good. This uh, quest for turning knowledge into principles with respect to pleasure and pain is going to end pretty badly if she doesn't look toward something existential, which is kind of where Ladislaw comes in.
1: I think something interesting that Carl's bring us to, too, is the idea of a romantic pursuit of knowledge. At one point, Elliot's narrator clarifies that something in the air is german romanticism in the 1820s but it has not yet suffused like all artistic pursuit at this point and so she's sort of from the 1870s looking back and saying hey you all know romanticism it's you know we're, we're founding english literature right now we're trying to make it a thing and we depend on that but look at back at these 1820s and know that like that spirit of like the great artist striking out on his own to create something is not has not yet like filled everyone's hearts and she's self-consciously doing that i want to mention a quick uh neck breaking pivot here unless someone had to follow up we haven't talked yet about the Vincys, rosamund and fred nor have we talked about mary garth mr featherstone and mr bulstrode and i think that speaks to just like the the size of the cast of characters and the sort of relegation to subplots of some of these plots but They are important, and I think they're going to come up in the next three episodes plenty. But because we've been focusing on Dorothy and Kosovan and to some extent Lydgate, we should emphasize to listener, that the cast is is extensive and the depiction of this place is really far-reaching.
2: The movie that it makes me think of is
1: Magnolia, the Paul Thomas Anderson movie. What would be the Amy Mann song to set this to, though? I don't know.
0: Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a good comparison point, Carl. This this sense of these stories and not entirely sure how they're going to fit together. Certainly at this point, um, but this this large cast of characters and almost an unwieldy cast of characters in some ways. For all that we focus on the you know the few central characters, there are all these other people who have these. There are whole other things going on. I love that you brought up Mrs. Um, Cottawaller earlier, Friedrich. She's a wonderful character who's there and it's just like not not very important, but she's spinning something. She's got her own thing going on. And Elliot takes the time to tell us like here's what her deal is, right? This is how she lives her life. You're absolutely right. There's such a richness in the cast of characters. We'll make sure next time certainly we pick up with some of these other ones as well. Think about how they're doing and what what they're embodying in the book as well.
2: I think the, the other most important part of the book, too, is that for a lot of like really beautiful asides or paragraphs, there's no characters, but there's just these like distilled philosophical uh, fragments about life. Yes, um, yeah. So one of, one of my favorite ones is that element of tragedy, which lies in the very fact of frequency has not yet wrought itself into the course and motion of mankind. And perhaps our frames could hardly bear much of it. If we had a keen vision and feeling of all ordinary human life it would be like hearing the grass grow and the squirrel's heartbeat and we would die of that roar which lies on the other side of silence as it is the quickest of us walk about well wadded with stupidity there's a like a real contemplation of like virtues and values kind of in these distilled and senses? that
0: bears directly on basically on the art of the composition of a novel like how do you If she were to give you that almost that overwhelming sort of super saturated realism, like it would be a complete freak out (laughs) of a book, right? And and maybe, you know, we see that in some of the experimentation that's going to happen in the 20th century, an attempt to sort of give you everything possible. But she knows, right, in order to lead us through her story, she has to select. She has to be doing some of that pruning for us as we go along because we are wadded with stupidity. (laughs) I like that a lot. That's great. (laughs) Uh, make that be true of us and all of us.
1: For more on that roar that lies on the other side of silence, see our previous season episode yeah. on silence. <laughs> that's good. That's right. And
2: for more stupidity, see us next time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, that's a good place to wrap up. I, I think for our first episode. Um, so next time we're going to be tackling books three and four of Middlemarch. It's about another two hundred pages if you're reading along. And uh, we hope you'll join us then for more wonderful discussions. We'll pick up some new themes, maybe touch on some some of the themes that we talked about this time. We will make sure, Friedrich's right, we'll make sure we touch on some of these other characters. If you're really concerned about what Bullstrode is up to, we can probably shoehorn him in next time. We'll get around to
1: where my Bullstrode stands <laughs> at.
0: We'll get to them next time. Um, until that point, though, we're going to let Cat Keyboard play us out.
2: meow,
0: meow,
1: meow, meow. Meow, meow,
2: meow, meow, meow. Meow, meow, Oh, those Russians.
1: I wish I could see a real dinosaur. I, I wish, wish they were, were real. Dinosaur, look, dinosaur. Yeah, wouldn't it be great if they were real?
0: Cool. <laughs>